gorgeous out. Let's pop some docks. This is the Updark Podcast, a blend of upland and waterfowl hunting. Tune in as your hosts, Tyler Meaden, Jeff Ludicky, Matt Jeske, chat about training dogs and share their bird hunting stories, tactics, and strategies. Welcome back to another episode of the Earth Dirt Podcast. My name is Tyler Meaden. I'm one of your hosts. And tonight, I only have one co-host. Just one, one sidekick. It is the rooster assassin and mud motor maestro. Jeff Ludicky. What's up, Jeff? Doing good, Tyler. How are you doing? Living the dream, you know? Living the dream, yep. Same here, buddy. I got a cookie and a beer. You can't get any better than that. Yes, sir. That is good. I'm back from SHOT Show in Vegas last week, so I'm still very tired from that, and that's not because I was out late, just travel, and I'm getting old. So. And you did you gamble at all while you were there on your, your adventure? Yes. You did? Yes. Yep. Okay. Did you win any money? No. Sat down at the roulette table and handed my money over. Did you put 20 on red like I told you? Mm-mm, no, 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 no. Oh, no. you spaced play. it out a little bit? No, I, I like to play uh, I like to play thirds. I like to play the thirds. So okay. it's usually a pretty safe bet. But yeah, uh, not good. Okay. Also, it's been like 10 years since I've been to casino and gambled. And Man, I don't know what it is if it's being a parent and you know having like a tighter budget and such, but I was having heart palpitations as I was giving my money to Vegas. Even a twenty dollar bill sliding across yes. the table, you're yeah. like, oh, oh well, man. no. So I no no, you can't like there's a there's a minimum ten dollar service charge from the ATM. So you're not taking out twenty dollars with a ten dollar service charge. You got to go a little more than that to make it worth it. Well, the problem is you showed up at Vegas with no cash in your wallet. That's that is mistake true. number one right there. True. But I wasn't going to, I was not going to gamble. I was going to meet folks like our guest will introduce here in just a minute. So uh, before that, though, we do have to say we don't have Matt here this week. He's getting ready for some giant fun hunting trip because all he does is take hunting trips. He takes like 15 a year. His That's mystery how- hunt that he couldn't tell anybody about. I know he couldn't tell anybody about. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to do an episode where he tells us all about it. So I can't wait to hear about that. If it's anything like the trips that we've had so or that we and he have had so far this year, I'm sure it will be sucky. But I hope not. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Oh. All right, Jeff. Beer. What are you drinking tonight? What is yeah. it? Hey, I've been getting super lucky. The Oktoberfest gods have been great to me this year. And I'm still finding Oktoberfest randomly in grocery stores. I don't know how. But I'm finding like one six pack at a time every time I go to the grocery store. So I have a Sierra Nevada Fest beer, Oktoberfest. It's a collaboration with some German brewery that I can't even pronounce the name of, but it's uh it's pretty good. And have you seen this uh this okayest hunter koozie I got going here? Tyler, have I have I told you about this? Yeah, I've seen it. Have you seen these before? I've, I've, I have, yes. I've, I've laid my hands on a few of them. Yeah. They're pretty nice. They are pretty nice. They are <laughs> excellent. Good job. So, yeah. Have you ever, have you ever had that beer before? That specific. It's the first. This is a first. I like their, their, uh, slogan though. It says family owned, operated and argued over right in the can. <laughs> beautiful. Perfect. That is beautiful. All right. Uh, enough of that. Let's bring in our guest who I happened to be able to shake hands with and sit down and talk. 
with at SHOT Show, which was fun. Uh, his name is, uh, or on social media, he goes by the handle Wild Game Cook. His name is John Wallace. John, welcome to the Up Duck Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we share similar uh, experiences in Vegas. I took no cash. Uh, my hotel was a $12 service charge. And uh, I did no gambling, though. I was very proud of myself. Uh, never been to Vegas. Uh, not that I'm not a gambler, but I just said, hey, I'm going to just be here on work this time. But interesting uh, place, too. I couldn't break change. I needed change to tip people, you know, um, baggage people, airport people. And uh, yeah, I can maybe tell you a funny story at the end of the podcast, how I end up getting a $10 barrel. <laughs> oh, <laughs> forget, forget, forget the end of the podcast. Just tell us now. Before we talk about, okay. We're going to talk about cooking this episode, if you couldn't guess, which I'm really excited for because I love cooking. It gets me really, really jazzed up. But we go down rabbit holes here, at bunny trails. So tell us the story. What happened? So all week I struggled to find cash. Um, I didn't bring my debit card. And not because you might think, you know, I'm irresponsible financially. It was because I, my first time traveling where I had these new fancy business cards and I put the business cards in the slot where my debit card goes. I never use the debit card. So um, I get to Vegas, realize I don't have a way to use the ATM. Well, I have a business uh, debit card and I'm like, oh, I could just use that. It's a business expense anyways. And I saw $11.99 service charge. And I was only going to, I honestly, joking, I put in $5 and it says minimum 20. I'm like, all right. Um, so I'm like, I'm not paying $12 to take out a 20. I'm not doing it. Just the Midwestern in me is just, I was too prideful. And uh, so I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty resourceful. Um, I can, you know, typically get out of certain sticky situations and I don't mind talking to people. So I start going to all the different restaurants, seeing if I could buy something and get cash back. It seems like anytime I don't need cash back, they offer it to me every time. Must be a thing in Vegas. They definitely do not offer cash back. Um, but I tried, I don't know, three different restaurants there in my casino. And I tried this option earlier with some uh, some partners of mine and it, they didn't have the app. But I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to turn around. These people just saw me get denied again. They seem like good folks. Uh, funny enough, she was singing Keith Whitley uh, from like the music up in the casino. And she was like karaokeing it. I was like, hey, man, it's too early in the evening for that. Just kind of cracking a little dad joke, you know. And she laughed. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to ask them if they have PayPal or Venmo or something. I'm going to pay them and then they'll give me the cash. Right. <laughs> and uh, pretty resourceful. Sure enough, they don't have either of those apps. And uh, she's like, you know what? I got like 10 bucks. And I'm like, I, I don't need your 10 bucks. I'll find some way to find $5 to tip this storage luggage guy at the hotel. And um, she's like, no, I, I insist. I'm like, and I'm dressed nice. Like, you know, I have like a, I have a work shirt on. I've got slacks on. Like, it's not like I'm panhandling. And I was like, you know what? That's fine. I get into my backpack and I had a hat that I had got from the show. It was, it was a nice hat. Uh, I'm like, are you a hunter? He's like, yeah, yeah. We've been at shot all week. I'm like, here you go. And I gave him this nice camo hat. I'm like, that's a pretty good deal right there. Right. And he's like, yeah. And so I started to give him my pitch about wild game cook and found out where they were from just so they knew I wasn't some, you know, sleazeball trying to take 10 bucks from them. But sure enough, got 10 bucks. And then I'm like, all right, I'm not going to tip the guy 10 bucks. Um, I was like, I'll come back and give you five. Like, don't worry about it. So I go to the little side bar thing. There's a guy pouring drinks and I'm like, Hey man, I'll just tip you. Just give me eight bucks back. I'll tip you two bucks for breaking me out. Again, I'm innocent. I don't know what's going on. You can't break bills. No one will break bills for you either. There's a bill breaker machine um, that doubles as an ATM. So I'm like, this is chaos. You know, I just want to tip this guy and get out of Vegas. And uh, so I go to the bill breaker machine, put the 10 in, it gives me two fives. And I end up tipping the airport security shuttle man too. And had a couple dollars for a uh, double cheeseburger on the way home, or I guess it was a sausage McMuffin in the morning on Saturday. But 
crazy enough, man. So sure enough, next time I'll take cash. It's uh, it's wild, D Jeff. I you can't even fathom Shot Show. You've never been there. It is so big. It's just it's it's monstrous. It is a it's a monstrosity. And Vegas is a place. It's an interesting place. Um, but mm, I really like quiet and like being outside in nature. I don't mind some noise. I'm a fundraiser uh, by nature. Let's say I'm really good in big settings. But I also have some sensory issues, I guess you could say slightly, especially at times if I'm overstimulated and such. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I got there, man, it was nonstop. I've got pizza vending machines talking to me like, hey, you want some pizza? It's like, no, I don't. And uh, everything's all the machines are saying, hey, come over here. Look at me. And uh, it's nonstop. It's a lot. It is. J Jeff, have you been to Vegas? I have been to Vegas. It was a, a quick visit. We drove. We rented a car. Convertible Mustang we rented. Me and Lauren, and you drove from San Diego to Vegas. Unfortunately, when we were there, it was beautiful in San Diego when we left. Got to Vegas, it was like in the 40s. Couldn't even have the top down. You had to have the top up, heater on. But we were there for like 24 hours. It was just straight people watching. That's all we did. Okay. You can you can do that. You you Sometimes you got you walk around a corner, then you have to run to get past people that you don't want to actually interact with. It's also an experience yeah. uh, that from a story that shall not be shared here but yeah it's i i was i had sensory overload right i mean we're right we're okay we're we tend to be overstimulated parents at this stage of our lives i'm guessing you are as well john at times i'm just overstimulated all the time for the most yeah. part especially yeah. around people yeah right and you show up in vegas and you in your your hotel room smells like smoke so you want to get out of it and as soon as you leave, there is zero quiet place, zero quiet space. There's nowhere to go where it's quiet. There's nowhere to go without lights like flashing at you and lots of loud noises, no matter what time of day it is. And it's just like, oh, please help me. Let me take me to the woods. Take me out in the boat. Let me sit in the swamp and get eaten by mosquitoes in silence. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. That's uh, that's enough about Vegas and SHOT Show. If you were there. Uh, Send us a message on social. We'd love to connect on that. Uh, but let's talk about cooking. And and before we do that, though, John, let's we need to get some more background on you, right? Your social media handle is Wild Game Cook, right? Are you a chef by trade? Where are you located? Um, when did you start hunting? I guess, I guess we want to know just some background info on you. For sure, yeah. Um, so I'm definitely not a chef. I generally kind of bring that up uh, often. A lot of times people mistake me for Wild Game Chef. And I, I kind of nix that. I'm like, nope, I'm a cook. Uh, the big difference there is one is formally trained, one isn't. So I'm just a glorified home cook who really found a passion for cooking. Um, I have a fish and wildlife degree by Nate or by trade, I guess. Um, I've got a bachelor's and associates in that. Uh, but I'm not a biologist. I'm a people person for sure. Um, but basically, I guess a little over 10 years ago, um, I started dabbling in cooking and, and figuring out how to cook wild game, specifically deer mostly at that time. And believe it or not, there was a period of time where it was kind of taboo uh, or like I don't want to say frowned upon, but like people didn't care what you ate for breakfast, lunch or dinner on Facebook. You know, I'd post like this really cool deer steak or something I made for dinner or leftovers the next day. And I'm like, John, we don't care. And so I figured I heard about this Instagram thing and started that, you know, and pretty much you can if you want to post your food, there'll be people who will follow you just to see your food. And that was in November of 2013. 
Um, I just started, I come up with a handle and I kind of had this whole epiphany, like in, you know, wild game chef. I mean, every, any username was basically available and wild game cook and it's stuck. And it's been that way ever since. Um, but yeah, I just found a love for cooking through college. Just when you get there, no one's there to cook for you anymore. You get tired of eating ramen and, you know, macaroni and cheese out of the microwave and hamburger helper. My roommates and I ate a lot of deer helper. Um, so just slowly, but surely watched a lot of food channel, um, cooking, um, cooking network or whatever food network cooking channel. And now it's Netflix. Now it's YouTube. If I want to learn, you know, new skills and such. Um, so that's pretty much that. Um, I kind of call my style semi-homemade, uh, family-friendly comfort food. So we're on the go almost every night of the week with sports. And when we're not doing sports, we try to hunt a lot. Uh, but we still find ways to eat at home like six, seven nights a week. Um, so we find ways to cut corners on time, to cut corners on ingredients. Um, the kids love it. You know, we, we're lucky. We, we pretty much don't have any really picky eaters at the house. Um, I'm based in Ohio. Um, born and raised here and I spent six years in Missouri in Columbia from 2013 to 2019. That's actually when I started Instagram. Um, my job with Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever took me out there. I worked for them for like 12 years doing fundraising um, in a couple different capacities. Um, but yeah, I remember being in the deer woods and I made my first Instagram post, which was a selfie, which I don't do too many of, um, but it was funny enough. It, was, it just said caption deer hunter and it was kind of like stoic uh picture while the deer woods was slow you know and then uh yeah it's just been kind of cooking and raising my kids outside um it's pretty much been my theme and my vibe for the last 10 years and uh i really enjoy it all right first question i have is that selfie from 2013 did you have the beard in that selfie i 100 had the beard um it had no gray in it and when i say no it was a jet black beard um and so it was quite the showstopper, but now I enjoy growing a beard, but man, uh, the more I look at myself in pictures, I'm like, geez, Louise, I'm getting old. I'm only 40. Um, I'm probably going to shave it off here soon. Uh, generally my wife gets a nice little free birthday gift. I, I cut it off for her cause she doesn't care for it. And her birthday fell kind of like during ATA show and shot show. And I kind of wanted to have this ambiance that I'm kind of known for. And uh, so she's asking me now, like every day, when's it coming off? Are you going to start trimming it? You know, because she knows once I start trimming, it, it's going to come off. Um, but yeah, when when I moved to Missouri, I left a state job. And when I worked for the state, I couldn't grow facial hair. It was a very law enforcement, military-esque policy. Um, mustache, couldn't go over the top of your lip, not past the corner of your mouth. Sideburns had to be no lower than the middle of the ear, uniform shape, right? Like very clean cut. And I can grow facial hair pretty good. So when I moved to Missouri, um, I, I started July 1st of 2013 and I grew a beard for six months straight. So I would have been like, what, five months in right then. Uh, didn't really trim it. It was kind of woolly uh, until I really knew what I was doing with it. But um, yeah, then it, that kind of started a whole thing where I was known for a beard and I fell in love with growing them. So, okay. All right. So now going, going back now. Uh, so I heard you say deer helper, right? Did you grow up hunting? Um, I, I did, I grew up in a hunting family per se. My uncles hunted. I started small game hunting when I was roughly 12, 13. So generally probably a standard age, um, you know, to kind of get out. Um, you know, I wasn't definitely a late hunter, but by, I was 14, I think was on my first deer hunt, killed my first deer at 15. And then it just, you know, kept going from there. I got into waterfowl hunting, 
uh, a little bit later. I was like mid twenties, believe it or not, before I finally got out on a waterfowl hunt. It wasn't for a lack of trying. I was trying to get in with folks all the time and just couldn't get in with them. Um, but now we do pretty much everything a little bit. So I'm not a dedicated deer hunter. I'm not a dedicated archery hunter or a waterfowl or an upland hunter. Um, we do everything. I've got three kids, one soon to be 15. He's a freshman. I've got a son who's a middle schooler who's 13. And my daughter just turned 10 yesterday. And uh, this was her first year carrying a firearm. She's been coming out with us since she's been four. And so a long time coming for her. She was really excited about it. Uh, but yeah, we squirrel hunt, rabbit hunt, pheasant hunt, waterfowl, deer, you name it. Did I see that you have a chocolate lab, John? I do. Yep. Rhonda, her birthday, ironically, was yesterday as well. So uh, okay. she was born and last year on my daughter's birthday. And um, I think well, that was she, she's young. She's still a pup. Two years oh. old? She's just a year old. Yeah. Oh, a year old. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But she had a great season. Um, you know, she's my second hunting dog. And, uh, you know, you kind of, I had a good friend of mine who's a big dog person. You're going to mess up your first dog. She didn't use the word mess up. Um, but, you know, I'm like, and he turned out pretty good, but like, there's a lot of things you're going to learn from that first hunting dog that you're going to change with the second one. And there were some small things like I, uh, eliminated the word stay, the command stay. It's just, you just sit until you're told otherwise, which was a big deal. That, that was, um, eight years or even longer than that when we had other house dogs, that was a big thing to change that vernacular. And then, um, I worked on her with holding a lot better at a younger age. Whereas my other dog, I was just happy that he brought it to me because uh, he's a meat dog, you know, as she is. Um, but he was born in May and I really wasn't in any hurry to hunt him that first fall where she was born in January and I was doing everything I could to get her prepared for dove season. And yeah, she's retrieved doves, pigeons, woodcock. Uh, we've done some preserve hunts. So pheasants, quail, uh, chucker, ducks. Um, she's had a great year and, uh, we're going to go to at least one more preserve hunt. My kids won a gift certificate at a local pheasants forever banquet for a local preserve. So we're going to go buy some birds here in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's awesome. Now, most of the seasons are pretty much all wrapped up down by you, right? In Ohio? Or you, um, was Goose well, still open, right? Yeah, Goose goes to like the middle of February. Okay. Um, squirrel goes out tomorrow. We've got nine acres here. My daughter and I actually went out for her birthday yesterday after school. We went out and kind of did what we call just the circle. There's We've got a six-acre field. It's like 200 yards by 200 yards. And there's some – I mean, I've got – it's all in habitat, and um, we just didn't see anything. But we're going to try to maybe get after squirrels tomorrow after school. And then that goes out. Rabbit goes till the end of February. Goose goes till the end of uh, middle of February. And then deer season archery is actually still in until Sunday. And I'm definitely going to get out one more time. <clears throat> one more time. Um, there's a little room in the freezer, but more so I've just got some ideas for some new recipes and some videos I'd like to do. So if I get one, awesome. Um, I don't get to kill very many deer. I mean, I've got two boys that have really been prolific the last four years. Um, we're lucky to hunt in Missouri and in Ohio. Um, and, you know, of the many deer they've killed, I mean, almost all of them are does. We're just, if a big doe walks out, it's pretty rare that she gets a pass. Um, so I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I mean, obviously you guys hunt a lot. What what percentage of your time do you think at home you're eating wild game versus store-bought meat? Great question. So it's a overwhelming majority it's wild game so we do buy chicken like that's probably our second protein behind deer meat um and then like after chicken it's probably a, a hodgepodge of goose and duck and pheasant and so on like we buy pork maybe two or three times a year um i'd say we eat chicken as much as the normal family i'd say but we're eating wild game at the house i, I don't want to say almost every night but generally speaking it's a, it's an idea in our head to have it that night it's a matter of whether we have the time to make the dish or whatever but it's mostly wild game. Um, what do we have tonight? 
we had uh, deer tenderloins tonight. Um, again, I, I'm lucky. I'm not. I'm. It's just we have a, a surplus of tenderloins and backstraps because of how many deer the boys can kill um, or have been able to kill. And so I'm privileged to be able to eat them at any time of the year I want, you know. And so these were from earlier this year and they were smaller does. So I had four tenderloins in a package and I just simply pan seared them. I'm a fair weather griller. If it's cold or rainy or snowing, like I'm not going outside unless I have to, unless I've promised someone some sort of goose pastrami or something. Um, so yeah, we just did that up with some grits and some canned green beans and it's pretty good dinner. I'm, I'm going to take a hard stance here. If you're, if you're, thinking about you have like a cut of meat right if you're talking like the tenderloin or if you're talking like a store-bought steak like a high quality steak and you can sear it like in a cast iron pan or grill it you should do it in a cast iron skillet versus the grill 110 percent. i love them both um I it's like good it's good i my, my my logic and reasoning is you can get a much more even and consistent cook in a cast iron skillet the grill temps can fluctuate inside the grill and then you can get like a nice, nice crust on it too. And then, I'll, I'll do you one better. I'd say if you could reverse sear it indoors, mm -hmm. you know, 275 for about 15, 20 minutes, depending on the thickness, the size of the cut, mm -hmm. a tenderloin can be rarely, uh, fairly small. I'm not going to say they're overrated, but I will say that they're overrated on the tenderloin side of things. But um, to reverse sear it and then get a hot sear in a cast iron pan with some butter to help the browning process, it really doesn't get much better than that. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that's that's awesome that you guys are primarily eating you know wild game at home. I'm kind of I'm very similar in that regard. I think I was talking about this the other day. It's probably been five years or so since I've bought any meat at all from the grocery store. Oh wow. So in my house, it's a little different because I'm primarily the only one that eats meat in my household. My daughter eats a little bit, uh, but my wife does not. So you know, one deer and you know, a whole freezer full of birds can last me a really long time. Um, but when I'm eating meat at home, it's, it's only wild game. So I'm, I, I like to do that. I try to do that as much as I can. It saves a lot of money too. Oh, no question. Um, so I do some cooking classes locally and I do a pre-class survey and I ask them how much money they spend on food a month. And it's more so because I also have a passion. I wouldn't call it a passion, but I have a strong interest in like budgeting and finance. Cause like we've been in and out of the debt roller coaster, you know, and so like it was like 2017, we got on the Dave Ramsey plan and really helped us out. That's what really gave me the financial ability to take this leap of faith into this full-time gig, which is now, you know, wild game cooking. And, um, you know, uh, I forget I was going there with that, but it's, it's crazy how much money uh, people spend on food. Like it wasn't that many, many years ago, like maybe two years ago, we were trying to stay under like, I want to say three or $400 a month on groceries. Um, you know, that's just like trips to Walmart, our local groceries and things like that. And the kids are growing, they're getting bigger, no question. And obviously with inflation, things are getting, you know, more expensive. So it was tough. I think now we're trying to stay under 600. It's not always the case. Cause again, with inflation, it's really, really killing us. And we're not as, uh, conservative as we should be on buying things we probably shouldn't be buying, but, um, these people are just spending God, they don't even know how much money they are spending, but it's, it's probably North of 2000 bucks. Um, cause I don't know how much they spend on meat a month, but it's a lot of money. Oh yeah. Um, it, it's wild. I mean, one bag at the grocery store now is like 50 bucks. One, of the last, one bag of groceries. Crazy. One of the last times I remember buying beef at the store, um, it was earlier in our marriage. It would have been like 2007, 2008. And, I didn't kill as many deer back then. I, if I was, if I could kill a deer, it was a great deal. If I could kill two, it was a phenomenal year. 
And I remember we were out and deer tacos are like one of my favorite meals to make just for more from a nostalgia thing, like just growing up with them. Um, I'm like, I really want tacos. I'm gonna go to the store and buy ground beef. And I go there it's like $6.99 a pound, $8.99 a pound for the different varieties. And like the cheap, like log of beef, you know, and like the plastic wrap. I mean, it was like three to five ninety nine a pound. It's of course a five pound log or something. And it's, you know, I'm like, Nope, I'm going home. I'm not eating tacos tonight. I'm not buying it. It's just like out of sheer principle. And so, yeah, we haven't bought beef and I don't even know how long, 15, maybe 15 years at the house. That's awesome. That is. I applaud you. That is a, like I, we probably, okay. Keeping it under 600 is really hard. I mean, we, we budget pretty hard at my house too, but food is the one thing that's really, really hard. Cause we buy a ton of fresh fruit and veggies. I know you do too, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And you know, we probably go through four or five apples a day at our house. Like I love uh, apples, my favorite fruit. And my daughter will eat, you know, half of like three apples a day. So, um, and the other half turns brown and goes into the yes. garbage. Yes, yes. We yeah. do okay with fruits and veggies. Um, and just to be clear, that is just quote groceries. That doesn't include dine-in, carry-out, or um, like dine-in, carry-out, or fast food, which yep. that budget number should be zero. It's not zero month to month, but on a bad month, it's like 250 bucks. And that's like with our size of our family, it's going out like three times. Yeah. Three to four oh, times. Yeah. Even fast food, any fast food place you go to, it's ten bucks a meal regardless of where you go. It seems these days. Yeah, we try to cut corners. Yeah, and it's still it's still wild. So yeah. it's it's really a huge cost savings if you are lucky enough to kill enough deer to supply you. Right, like I said, uh, again, the full disclosure: the boys have killed four or five deer each of the last four years, um, two or three in Ohio or two or three in Missouri, depending on how the year falls. I just killed my first deer since 2019. This year is a little fawn, uh, but it was my first first deer kill. I'm not going to lie. I had a little selfish desires while we were on the blind with the boys and me and my one son doubled uh, with crossbows. And I was like, give me that crossbow. I know it's going to come back. And I filled a tag for the first time. I wish I wouldn't have because then I didn't want to buy another $31 tag because I'm a tightwad. But, uh, you know, when the kids can get them as cheap as they can, just let them, you know, get some trigger time. And now I got my daughter who will be hunting deer and turkey this next year, which will be a whole nother thing that I don't even know how I'm going to tackle that just yet, but um, we'll get it figured out. Be a bigger freezer. Yeah. I don't need a bigger freezer. That'll just be less killing for the boys. <laughs> yeah. I just upgraded. I got like a 21 cubic foot. My other one, uh, rest in peace. I had like a freezer I bought for 50 bucks off a guy. I think it was probably from like the eighties, maybe even older. And it, I bought it in like 2007 and it just went out this last summer. Nice. So that was a crazy good investment. Yeah. Um, it was a 15 cubic foot. It was really small. So I upgraded knock on wood. Hopefully no, no disasters with the freezers happen. It so, happens. So you're happen. you're full time now with Wild Game Cook, right? You yes. said. So yeah, back in May. What does that What does that look like for you? What is the majority of your time? Are you doing classes? Are you building cookbooks? Like, what What are you doing? Great question. So, um, it it started with a really nice partnership with Midway USA. Um, so I mentioned I worked for Quail Forever uh, for a good while, and their VP of e-commerce, um, Adam Augustine, reached out to me. Um, he was one of my former quail forever volunteers and they were looking to build a team of ambassadors to fill different buckets if you will dog training um prepping tactical you know all kinds of different stuff and i fit the bucket of wild game cooking and uh, so reached out to me and uh they they compensate me to create video recipes video how to's articles pictures things of that nature and um I have a couple other partnerships as well so that right now that's about 60 percent of you know kind of my my revenue stream and then I also do 
private cooking events, um, kind of like a paint and sip. I've been told it's it's called. So like uh, instead of painting and drinking wine in a studio, I come to your house. I bring everything I need. Doesn't necessarily have to be wild game. Could easily be chicken or beef. Um, but I come to your house with five cooktops. I show you how to make the dish and then I turn it over to everyone to make their own dish. So instead of going out for axe throwing or whatever it is you want to do socially, you can invite your friends over and we can, you can learn how to cook or maybe you know how to cook and it's just a different recipe. Um, so I'm doing that, um, to kind of fill in the rest of the pie. And then I'm going to be having some wild game apparel, you know, hats, hoodies, shirts, that whole deal. I don't expect it to be a large chunk of the revenue, but at least that'll be out there. So digital content creation and kind of in-person cooking demos, cooking classes, um, butchery demos like deer breakdowns, stuff like that. So you're not a professional chef, but you're creating content and teaching cooking classes. 100 percent yeah, yeah as your as your full as your full-time gig i think you could change it, it your, sounds gig. professional yeah you could change your handle <laughs> so I, again I, i'm uh i'm more of an entertainer than a caterer i tell people that like oh could you cater this event i'm like i'm not i can't cater for that many people i, I don't it's not how i cook you know i'm cooking for maybe 10 12 people like i've hosted thanksgiving and christmas at my house or time or two with family um but yeah, I just I know how to cook. I, I really I love I know how to eat good food. You know, I just want to eat good, well seasoned food. I didn't grow up with the most like uh, from scratch cooking. Uh, wasn't maybe the best seasoned food, and um, we always had food. It just wasn't the best, you know. So I just found a love for cooking really good, well balanced food, and I've just I, I still continue to learn. Um, but yeah, I think that's what makes my brand approachable. Again, similar to like you know, hunt your hunt. Like you know, I'm not getting the tweezers out. And like placing microgreens on the plate along with some sort of reduction, you know, like I, I'm just making good, normal home cooked food. I just happen to be using wild game as the protein. Yeah, there's something to be said about that. I mean, cooking can be in recipes in general can be very intimidating to novice cooks like myself. You know, you start seeing all these recipes and you just, OK, I'm just going to throw it in some Italian dressing, marinate it and throw it on the grill like you just too much. Right. And I was kind of reading in your bio that you try to keep things simple you know, using ingredients that are, you know, primarily found in everybody's pantry. You know, I, I, I really like that. That's the approach you're taking as opposed to try and getting super fancy with everything. Right. And we get super fancy a time or two, maybe like New Year's Day or maybe our anniversary, or if we have like really special friends over, like I'll do like a beef Wellington or a steak Diane, you know, like some sort of Hank Shaw recipe, which I love to do. But Generally, again, just to reiterate, like we do, we have three kids who will soon be doing three sports a year. My oldest two have been doing three sports or maybe even four sports a year for the last, I don't even know how many. It's nearly every night of the week. If we get a rare night off, um, more times than not, it's like a lazy day. Like we're just going to like crash at the house, but you can't cook those types of meals. If you, you're like, you're either eating at four o'clock, four 30, or you're eating at like nine o'clock in the evening after you get home. Yeah. So you have to have certain meals that fit into those boxes. And I am lucky I, I'm at home all day and I easily could be meal prepping or doing things. And I do sometimes I do prep, you know, throughout the day or whatever, but um, I just like to eat good home cooking, stick to your ribs type of stuff. And I don't like make everything from scratch. Like I love instant potatoes. I always have like more than regular, like real potatoes. We buy whole green beans, not the, uh, the cut green beans for the peasants. You know, we buy the whole great value, uh, you know, whole green beans. It just tastes better. It looks better on the plate. Um, but when I do these classes, I tell them up front, my cooking styles to really focus on the entree, but the sides are going to be, you know, quick and fast, like canned green beans and instant mashed potatoes. They're going to be good. 
but if you're expecting it to like have heavy cream and chives and everything else from scratch you're you got the wrong guy when you're, you're teaching people to make meals that are achievable and meals that they can repeat when you're not there you know that's that's a big thing too is you always see all the what do they call them pinterest fails online where you know somebody has this amazing looking meal and then somebody tries it at home and it just looks awful and they completely butcher it you know you're you're teaching people to make meals that they can do right they can they can make them taste good even when yeah, they're not there showing them the common dish that i make for this i call it cooking with john class where it's the private cooking with everyone's kind of socializing it's a chicken pasta dish now you can totally do it with pheasant you could do it with any sort of game bird uh say a white meat game bird but they're they're sauteing the veggies they're searing the chicken breast you know they're boiling the water for the pasta like if you can sear a, a chicken breast you can sear a steak you can sear a pork chop if you can saute mushrooms and onions you can saute other veggies right so you're learning those skills and i i, I guess i take it for granted because i've learned how to cook over a long period of time but it's like anything else once you truly understand something you don't need the recipe you just know how it's going to work and how it functions there's different online systems in my previous life you know through a fundraiser and stuff where it's like I don't know how this website functions. Well, it's because I don't take the time to understand it because I really don't want to. Um, but I think most people, once they, they, they do like to cook, they like to eat good food. So once they kind of um, find a knack for a, or a love for cooking, they'll start to understand like the four main pillars of cooking. And I learned this off of Netflix. Um, Samine is her first name. I can't think of her last name off the top of my head, but there's a series on Netflix called uh, Salt, Acid, Fat, and Heat. And if you learn how those things all work together and balance each other out, uh, that's like a core foundation of good seasoned, good tasting food. Nostrat, Samin Nostrat, I think is her name. She's very pleasant to listen to. And they're like 45 minute episodes. And I helped teach some uh, high schoolers this last year how to cook this, this exact dish. Uh, everyone from freshman to senior took this class a part of uh, Real Life Wednesdays, you know, teaching these kids how to cook. And they all made the dish just fine. Some people made the quick version and some people made the Sunday dinner version. The quick version is using a Tyson chicken patty, like a breaded chicken patty and just putting in the microwave and dicing it up. And then the Sunday dinner version is real chicken, adding the mushrooms and veggies and stuff. But I shared with them that that series as well, because it's very it's very easy to watch and it's very knowledgeable. Um, so, yeah. I uh, I think I started watching that that episode. I have a I haven't. I have not watched all of it yet, but that's, it's interesting. And it's cool. You know, the, the good thing about the time we live in is we live in the age of information, right? You know, like you, I grew up, like my dad had cooked wild game. I don't think he cooked it very well, but there wasn't, most of the time it's just overcooked and dry, right? You, you know, wanted to make sure it was done. That's what yes. we got to make yes. sure it's done. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> if we're talking, right. If we're talking like, if we're talking venison, right that's really hard to see because it's because of the color of the meat generally when it's done, unless you're using like a meat thermometer where you want, if you want to cook it to medium. So those didn't rare. exist back in the day unless you're. Yeah, rich. yeah, exactly. Right. So like, you know, learning, we're, we're very lucky to live in the age of information that we live in where we can go out and watch YouTube. We can watch an episode on Netflix. And then if you really want to take the time and practice like you have, like you can just get really, really good at it. Yeah. And, and you, like, if you, Right. I followed your your page for a while. You have some really interesting recipes, right? Like we're going to we're going to segue to like pheasant and upland game here in just a minute. But like the, the most recent one is like a, a peanut butter pheasant. OK, that's that's cool. That's that's really unique and fun. 
Yeah, and it, that really, I'm, I made that on the fly. And uh, again, over time, I just kind of understand maybe which flavors complement one another, right? Because I, I didn't look it up. And funny enough, I saw a random video. I don't know if it was TikTok or whatever it was. But it was a random video, and it was this lady talking about like cooking hacks, and you know why try to scrape the peanut butter out of the jar when you can just warm it up a little bit and add your stuff to the jar, shake it, and now you have your sauce. And I just I didn't even save it or nothing. It just I have a pretty good recall, you know, for seeing things. And my kids go through peanut butter like crazy. Like we probably have three tubs in there right now, and they eat it every day. And so I'm like, I'm gonna do that one time. So I added the soy sauce, I added some honey, I added, um, you know, that's pretty much it. Those are the two main two. I can't think of the rest off the top of my head, but like it tasted really good. And funny enough, I'm not one for recipes at all. Like I, I really don't care to write them. I, I can write them, but it's just uh, I'd rather just some random person call me and I'd walk it, walk them through it. But I thought better enough to go like, you know what? I should try to write that down while I have a general idea of what I put in there because I didn't know how much peanut butter was in there. I didn't. It's not like I could measure it. And um, I wrote it down and I've got it fairly close. And I went and bought some fish sauce recently and some other things people said might help the sauce. Um, but you get, you know, the whole reason my page started is because I got tired of eating everything like dove poppers, dove poppers, deer poppers, duck poppers, wrapped in bacon, marinated for four days. Those things all taste really good. A stuffed backstrap wrapped in bacon is about as indulgent as you can get. But bacon is expensive. Uh, it's very heavy. It's very rich. And, you you know, there's other ways. And that's really the whole premise. If you like the, the word in the bio is inspiring other people to try new ways of eating their wild game. Like that's all I'm really there to do. I'm not there to give you recipes. Like most times, even though I have a whole cabinet full of the best wild game cookbooks there are, and I love that I have them, um, we rarely pull them out. Um, we just Google meatloaf or we Google whatever it is we were trying to make. And we look for one that fits our style. We look for one that has ingredients we have at the house and we, we play off of that. Again, my, my wife and I, my wife does do a good bit of the cooking as well. Um, that's generally why we have more chicken. She's definitely in, in some ways more comfortable cooking chicken than she is deer meat, especially the prime cuts. So that's why if I'm not home and I'm on the road, that's why we do have chicken quite a bit. It's just so easy to cook. Um, but yeah, just, um, normal cooking. It's just, just swap out the protein, you know, whether it's pheasant or it's deer meat, you know, waterfowl is a little different. I mean, cause there's a different flavor profile there, but, um, easily deer for beef and pheasant or chucker or quail for, fez, uh, for chicken easily. Just don't cook it as long. That's really the main thing. Okay. All right. Jeff, I don't know about you, but that feels like a great segue to talk about upland cooking right now. Perfect segue. Let's go. Okay. Perfect segue. Let's go. All right. So, um, let's talk about pheasant, specifically pheasant, because that's the that's the upland game that we hunt the most. We can talk. We can lump them all together here, right? Yeah. We'll we'll just call say upland birds. I know that can be pretty yeah. vague, but yeah, right. And you just mentioned mentioned John, right? You're, you're basically taking your chicken recipes and substituting in right a different white meat, basically. Yeah. Um, there's there's no reason you can't do that. Okay. Um, it's just a little bit different. They're not, you know, uh, a chicken um, is theoretically bred to, you know, be tender, to have less tendons, things of that nature. You know, uh, a chicken leg is not going to cook the same as a pheasant leg. But generally speaking, especially as the breast meat goes, it is generally the same. Just don't cook it as long. Um, but we do need to give the legs their just due. I mean, most times on social media, the legs get showcased five to 10% of the time. 
it's it's a very alarming rate that I think just so many people have been accustomed to quote breasting out their birds, turkeys, ducks, geese. Uh, it's definitely a, a a pain point for me. So I try to do better at promoting those types of things. Um, and there are great uses for those tough cuts. Um, and I can we can get into some of those. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, if, if and if you do take some time, I actually um, I think it's worthwhile whether it's waterfowl, whether it's upland. I had a little thing. This I don't know if this is a plug or not, but I don't get paid to say this. But this is a high mountain jerky. This is their game bird and poultry brine mix, and it is an absolute game changer. I know that's a terrible pun, but it, it is. It completely transforms your waterfowl, especially, but it also does give some moisture and some juiciness to those pheasants, quail, chucker. Um, you know, the, I'm not a scientist at all, but the way that the salts work in there, you know, holds in the moisture and makes it a little harder to overcook. Um, so definitely a worthwhile investment uh, for sure to look into that. And if, and if you can't, uh, I'll take, this is a recipe from Hank Shaw, but um, a quart of water, a quarter cup of kosher salt, not table salt, like iodized salt, just kosher salt, quarter cup kosher salt, quarter water. Really that could be it. If you wanted to add like a tablespoon of sugar, brown sugar, regular sugar, you could. But that brine in itself is is better than not brining your birds in most cases. Not that you have to, but if you're, you know, certain recipes, like even just grilling a bird, that's where you can really dry out and overcook a pheasant breast pretty quickly. So brining it ahead of time. Another way to brine it is uh, just what they call a salt cure. So you just take that same kosher salt and just season the breast like you normally would to eat it. And then just let it sit there for a couple hours, whether it's in the fridge, whether if you're going to eat it in an hour, leave it on the countertop. Um, if you've got a whole pheasant and you want to put that salt on there and put it in the fridge overnight, again, the science of it all, you know, it tightens up the skin, dries it up. So you get a good crispy skin and just keeps it moist. But brining your birds is something I didn't do for a very long time. And I'd say over the last four years, I really started doing it at the advice of Hank Shaw and others. And it definitely helps your birds for sure. It gives you more room for error. And so... I was going to say that's that's funny that you mentioned the whole uh, the legs, making sure you utilize the legs from the pheasants because we had quite or Tyler had quite the experience when we were in Iowa. I primarily always keep the legs. I do the breasts and the legs. Um, Tyler had never done that before. And let me tell you, it was quite entertaining watching him try to get the legs off of these pheasants. You know, it's, it's a very simple process. It's well, he okay. made it very difficult. <laughs> I did. This is true. This is true. There's a lot it. of ways to, to to clean a pheasant. I've been on a lot of youth hunts, and there's many ways. I don't care how you do it, as long as you get in there and grab them, uh, because it's a lot of meat, especially the thighs. The thighs are amazing. Yeah, uh, and they're a little bit more easy to cook than than the legs themselves. But, and funny enough, generally out of every bird we kill, uh, if it's not shot up or it's not basically if it's not shot up, we try to keep the hearts and the livers as well. Um, I never am one to get into like a huge pile of birds to where like the gizzards would be worth my while, but mm -hmm. you totally could. But nine times out of 10, if it's not absolutely pulverized or for some reason I didn't get lazy and age my bird. A lot of times when I say I dry age my birds in the fridge, which I totally am, it's more because I'm dead tired from taking out two or three kids and managing the dog that I just leave them in there for a few days. And sometimes I won't keep the hearts and livers if they've been in there a while, but they're totally edible and just a simple uh, little purge in water. Like you would almost purge your crawfish, you know, just like let them leach out a little bit. You don't need to have uh, salt water, just regular water, change the water out, dry them really good. Maybe like let them sit on a rack just till they dry. So that when you go to fry them, they're not popping like crazy popping grease everywhere. But it's like one of the favorites to eat in our house is like fried hearts, fried livers, 
Um, not so much deer heart. Uh, we, you know, that could be for another podcast, but bird hearts and stuff. Great appetizer. Um, they're really good. I mean, you, you fry them. It's one of the few things that we do fry here at the house. Okay. All right. Let's. So there's a lot to unpack in what you said in the last five minutes here. Let's go back though to just let's just start with cleaning the birds, right? Yep. yep. So I am someone that I grew up right. We just basically breasted the pheasants, probably because it was the end of the hunt. Dry aging was a term that I didn't hear of until probably the last five years. We didn't know what it was, right? We're all tired in a hunt. We just breast our birds out, right? Our pheasants and that that's that. What, I guess, for you when you're teaching, if you're teaching someone or or just what method would you recommend for just simply cleaning your pheasants and then for, for, for popping the legs off too? Just talk us through sure. that first. So again, um, part of my brand is I'm, I'm not the best at field dressing things, cleaning things, because I don't get into them a lot. But I generally... Uh, I take the breast out because I do keep the legs, but I do almost every time I cook them separately in a whole different preparation. Uh, not every time, but most times. Um, so what I do as I'm, I, I breast them out, I then go ahead and I just basically pull the, the skin and the feathers back off the leg to expose the kneecap. And I just kind of push it out and through pheasant skin. Isn't as tough as like say goose. So you can generally um, break the skin and pull it past the foot. You can take game shears and cut them at the knee. So that generally when you pull the skin, it'll pop right off the end of that foot. Um, a little trick I learned from Steve Ranella, uh, meat eater, on one of his episodes. If you if you leave that foot on, and this works with ducks, um, geese, pheasants, um, you know, any of the, those type, types of birds, you just lightly score that skin on the outside, that real kind of dinosaur-y looking chicken foot at that big knuckle. Just lightly score it so you're not cutting any of the any of the tendons, and you start twisting that foot, and you'll feel it tighten up in the leg. And once you've twisted it six or eight times, you pinch the meat and you pull that foot out, and all the tendons will be left. Most of the tendons will be left dangling in your hand with that foot, and that frees up a lot of those in that meat in the lower legs. Um, but I generally just expose the leg, and then I pop the ball and socket joint out. So I, I mean, I see it, I can I can hear it, I can feel it. Um, I just take my knife and I run it as close to the, the carcass, the spine as possible, and generally just pull the leg out that way. Um, another way uh, is to go up the spine on each side with a pair of game shears and remove the spine. That'll also take all the guts out. Again, if you want to keep the heart and liver, make sure you're looking for that. Um, and then that gives you more of a spatched cockbird if you do want to keep the legs uh, connected. Anyone that's ever cleaned a pheasant, they're not like very, very connected. They're very loosely attached to the body with like a thin piece of meat. Um, but once I do, going back to like where I just pop the legs out, I mean, I literally just try to expose it. There's no, it, I'm not, it's not pretty. It's not sexy the way I do it. I just, however it means to get that leg off that bird, if it is shot up really bad, which totally can happen, I'm a terrible shot. You don't lead your bird well enough. You hit it in the back of the bird. The legs are all dangling. Generally speaking, I won't mess with them if I feel there's 20 bone fragments in there or a lot of shot in there. Um, if I think I can salvage the thighs, I will. Or if I have other birds. If I only have one bird in a leg shop, I'm very well not keeping them. If I have other birds, I very well may keep the one leg, right, that isn't ruined. Um, and then so then I take my knife and just ever so slightly cut right below the breastplate to kind of get my hands in there so I can pull that breastplate back. And that's when I go in there and grab the liver and the heart. Um, you got to watch for the liver. Um, there's a little green sack that's attached to it. I think it's the gallbladder. Uh, there's a green, looks like an ink sack with green ink. Um, you don't want to get that on your meat if at all possible or, or on your liver really. 
So just kind of be careful as you're grabbing those lobes of liver and just kind of pull them out. And um, that, that's basically how I do it. It's not, it's not very sexy. Um, so, yeah. And then I typically take the legs and I freeze them until I get enough to make a meal, right? And I slow braise those almost every time. Brine them. I may smoke them, you know, smoke them until they're tender. But generally a smoke and then a braise or just braising them in a liquid covered is the best way to get them tender. And then once they're tender, you can pick them. And once you pick them, you can do anything you want with them. You know, barbecue, pot pie, uh, buffalo turkey dip, uh, buffalo chicken dip, pheasant dip. You know, like that's definitely something I do with legs because um, I can take them and put them in my food processor and kind of uh, pulse them up and just make buffalo turkey dip. It's a very, I don't say a rednecky recipe. Again, it's very approachable. How many people take buffalo or buffalo chicken dip to a family event, right? Um, so again, turkey legs, I know I'm jumping around, but like there's like three pounds of meat there between both legs and you can make a lot of buffalo chicken dip and it, and it takes well in the freezer. You can freeze it and pull it back out later and it keeps fairly well. Um, so that's how I clean birds. Yeah, that's good. No, yeah. that's good. I'm, I'm not like the, the law. I got to practice. I got to, Jeff, we got to do some game farm hunts and, uh, um, you know, apparently I have to practice popping the legs out. I have a vivid memory of him walking back into our Airbnb in Iowa on our pheasant trip. I tried the twist with the attempt didn't... of his oh, it was, leg. It was, oh, it, it was, was just mangled. I still have that picture in my mind. You got to oh, twist it, was, it more, and you got to pinch harder with your other hand. It's yeah, it's it was, not... yeah, it was twisting, and it's just like it wasn't good. It wasn't pretty. You know what? But you're learning. You're learning. That's learning. it. That's right. You know. Right? Hey. You can't get better if you don't fail. So that's right. hundred percent. Yeah. Starting at the bottom. Yeah. I failed a lot. And uh, (laughs) that's one thing I bring to the table is like, Hey, you can try that, but generally speaking, this is going to happen. Now, now pheasant usually has really, really thin skin, like a really thin layer of skin compared to, you know, a mallard or something like that. But do you ever try to pluck pheasants at all or upland birds? Or are you basically just skinning them? Um, so good question. So it's, it's thinner but it's not as thin as say a dove or a quail. Um, it's definitely thinner than a duck or a goose, but it's, it's quite easily pluckable because if you've ever plucked one or plucked a turkey, it's like, it looks like there's a lot of feathers, but really it's not when you start plucking, there may be 20 feathers that you thought was 200, but there's only 20 feathers covering that bird up right there, right on the, mm-hmm. on the breast or on the back. So if I'm plucking a bird, generally I'm doing like a beer can pheasant type of a recipe. I have like a little chicken thing that like, you put your liquid in whatever liquid you want and you pop your little pheasant on it. But I mean, if you get a big enough rooster, you know, like a bush light can will totally fit right in there. Um, but I brine it first with that high mountain game bird and poultry brine and then lightly season it. Cause there's so much salt in that brine that you want to be careful using a rub that has a lot of salt in it. You want to use a rub uh, again, any flavor profile works, right? Sweet and smoky or whatever you want, but just make sure that salt isn't a really large component. Cause you could maybe possibly over salt your bird which isn't the biggest thing in the world, depending on, you know, a lot of people like salt, you know, but um, that's a good way to do it. If I'm, if I'm using the whole bird, um, I typically give the legs to the kids quite frankly, cause I'm picky and I don't really want to have to work at it and they don't really care. So they'll, they'll get after it. You know, sometimes it's not the most tender, but you know, my kids love it. Like they'll just go to town. Now, once the bird is cleaned, you know, how are you handling the meat from that point? Do you generally vacuum seal your birds? Do you, throw them in freezer bags? Like, how are you normally doing that? That's a great question. And that's a long conversation. I'll try to keep it short. So wrangle me in if I need to, but like, to me, that component right there, whether it's deer or goose or pheasant, they're all different, right? 
but that component of once it's cleaned, how do you make it best to either get in the freezer or do things to dry age it or whatever? Because I think dry age, there's multiple ways to dry age. I, I You can call my version the redneck version of dry aging because like um, the opposite of redneck dry aging, I guess, like you could like hang your birds guts and all, right? You're hanging them until their head falls off and such. Like I'm not talking about all that, but um, I generally take my pheasants, which are generally skinless, you know, breast and legs. Um, if it's not terribly shot up, I'm not really doing much of anything. I very well may just put it right into a vac sealer. I'm, I'm a vac seal guy every single time. Uh, Ziploc bags have very little use outside of maybe fish. If you, if, you know, I, I vac seal my fish too, but you can put your fish in water and put it in a Ziploc bag and get all the air out. But if you're just taking your turkey breast or whatever it is you may have and just putting it in a Ziploc and hoping for the best, I mean, it's going to get freezer burnt in just a few weeks to a month. You're going to start to see some signs of that. Um, but if it is shot up a lot, um, you know, and you get birds at close range and you didn't mean to, but it's pretty shot up and there's some blood in there and some different things. I do like to soak them in a water bath, um, not salt water. I got away from doing salt water long ago. A lot of people say, well, the salt helps draw the blood out. I was once told that the reason that the salt draws the blood out is because it makes the muscles tighter and it forces it out. Well, when it makes it tighter, it's not as tender as it once was. Um, some of your really chefy type folks will tell you, don't let the breast touch water either because it'll start to do these different processes. Again, I'm a very average kind of guy and I'm introducing my wife who's naturally a city girl from Cleveland. Like the meat's got to look right. You know, it can't be bloody. And if you're talking about ducks and geese or even pheasants and there's blood in there, it's definitely going to taste different than if there's no blood. So I'll generally put them in water if I need to. And then the big thing that I do is I'll take them out of that once I feel that they are as good as they're going to get. And I'll put them in a plastic container, right? Whatever you've got, your Tupperware. And I'll put paper towels in there and allow those paper towels to continue to not only just pull the moisture from that, not in a bad way, right? But just let it drain and get as much moisture out of there as possible. Once it's, you know, a little tacky to the skin because it's been in the fridge, you know, covered or uncovered, then I'll put it in my back sealer. You just want to be uh, careful of any exposed bones. Uh, if you're cutting the, the spine out and it's spatchcocked or you've you've cut the legs with shears above that knuckle so you've got a sharp bone, you just need to take some damp paper towels and like cover up the ends of the legs. Or if you've got multiple birds, take a breast piece of breast and like cover up that leg bone because it will pop your bag, which will give you a bad seal. Um, but draining those birds and draining what I call the fluid, uh, it's like a myoglobin protein. I try not to get too technical. It's fluid. I don't care whether it's blood, water, myoglobin, whatever all that is. I've found that if you can get rid of all that, deer meat, et cetera. Now, deer meat, I'm not soaking in water, okay? But draining it as I'm processing it and letting it drain and do its thing will just take your wild game to a whole nother level. Mm. Much cleaner tasting for sure. That's good. Yeah, I got to step my game up when it comes to uh, post-processing of birds, that's for sure. I, I don't have a vacuum sealer. I, I probably should. Um, luckily, I with birds at least, I tend to not even freeze them. Usually they go right into the fridge and the next day I'm cooking them. Um, right. But when I do, it tends to be in that Ziploc gallon freezer bag, you know, and that's I, it sounds like I got to try to get away from that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if you, I think people probably do it, take pheasant legs or something, put it in water. I wouldn't just put it in there with no water. Like, I would try to get rid of the air because that's going to be your enemy for sure. Mm. But there's very affordable back sealers out there now. Like, we got lucky. We um we didn't, like, you know, you get married, you have your little registry and all that. Your wife goes crazy. We never registered for a back sealer to my knowledge, but we got one. 
and we used it for like nine years and um we just needed one to function a little better because we started to kill more deer we gave it away at a garage sale i told the lady like it works it's fine we just don't need it anymore but we've always had one and it works great for leftovers our family's larger now um you know with our kids being older so we do try to buy in bulk at times and so it's very handy for that we garden so we we um like blanch or flash what do you call them flash blanch or whatever our veggies my wife does all that kind of stuff but like she freezes a lot of veggies there's a lot of uses for a vac sealer you can use it to marinate meat if you're going to get into sous vide cooking which i have a sous vide cooker it's like a lot of a lot of work it seems but um if you're going to do that you're going to need bags you don't have to have them vac sealed but there's a lot of ways to justify you know 129 bucks or something in your budget uh lem products has a new one called the max vac go and it's chargeable like your cell phone and you don't need to plug it in so you could technically you know take it with you again mind you like any state and federal regulations as far as you know transporting birds and keeping their sex with them and stuff like that but if you're at a preserve and you got your little game tags and all that you can totally back seal them on the tailgate at the preserve and put them in there and whether that's just to get you home or it's finished ready product ready for the freezer but i think it's like 129 bucks it's not expensive it's a nice little unit Awesome. I'll have to look that up. Look for the yeah. units that have a pulse vac option. Um, pulse what vac. What that pretty much means is instead of just hitting um, vacuum and it just goes, a lot of times, like you'll get air pockets in there. So the pulse vac allows you to kind of massage the bag and it'll only vac as you're touching the button, right? Uh, you, can, you can stop and go, stop and go. And then when you're ready, hit the seal button. And that's a nice, that's a nice accessory. And it's on that max vac go. That seems important because my parents had one and it was, it would cause nothing but frustration for my mom. She'd try to be, you know, vacuum sealing these things and it would just sit there going, and it just would never create that there's, seal. There's definitely a learning curve. I mean, I've, I've probably had six or seven different vac sealer units in the last 17 years. Um, some I only had for a short while and they weren't great units. Um, but there is a learning curve, you know, not getting too conservative on your bag because I don't want to waste any bags. And now you've made the bag too small and it won't seal right. So there's a learning curve with that, just like there is with anything else. Yeah, But it, it's yeah. a big step. I really can't reiterate that enough. That post processing, I, I'd still call it processing, but you've cleaned the bird, you field dressed the bird, that point until it gets into the freezer or even goes into your belly, that whole process right there is where I think a lot of people get turned off of bad tasting game. Um, you know, if some people say, oh, I'll eat the back straps at deer camp that night, you know, I'm sure it tastes great because you're at deer camp with your friends and such, but apples to apples, like just taking a piece of meat off the deer that you just ate is not going to taste anywhere near as good as if it hung for three days. Um, there's just like, again, some stuff that's happening in there. That's, that's changing the meat and such. It's not going to be bad. Um, it's just not going to be as good. Interesting. That's, I mean, it's, this is fascinating. There's such a science to this too right and we're like just scratching the surface of it yeah um because you know jeff you're you're like a same day i'm gonna kill birds and cook and eat them kind of guy um i'm really surprised you don't have a vacuum sealer yeah now, i should yeah well yeah, my problem I, is it goes in the freezer and then you know i have a hard time you know planning ahead enough to get it yeah. out thawed out marinate yeah. so i'm usually just like i'm cooking it you know, I'm either that night or I'm cooking it the day after. Right. In a little bit different situation, right? With you killing the things you're killing and you're the one mostly eating it, that, you know, it's a little bit different dynamic than our house. Whereas generally we are trying to squeeze a hunt in on the three hours we have. Like I have a youth hunt coming up on the 17th of this month. And my daughter has a game at 940. There's two sessions, a morning and an afternoon. I'm totally going to miss my daughter's basketball game. I'm going to make up for it later in the day. But I'm going to take my two boys out in the morning session and then 
I don't think I'll be able to catch the end of our game, but in the afternoon, I'm going to take her out for this youth hunt. And so my point is, is like, we may only have a couple hours to go. I'm trying to get them field dressed and either mostly just in the freezer until I can get time to get them properly taken care of or put them in the fridge until I get them properly taken care of. Um, but generally speaking, she's already got a plan as far as what we're going to eat for that night or whatever. So like that's in the freezer. And then I use a lot of that for like when I try to brainstorm what I want to make. And then that's how I come up with the ideas for my videos for like Midway USA when I'm trying to come up with some creative, you know, ideas for, for recipes. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I have, a, I, so I do have a vacuum sealer and I've, I've loved it, but it does not have that pulse feature, which makes sense. Right. And you mentioned the learning curve. It's very finicky to get a good seal on it. Right. If I don't have the bag just right, it just doesn't quite seal. So, um, there's a, there's a lot to that. I apparently need yeah, to Yeah. Moisture is a big thing. So like moisture will create a seal in itself. So if moisture is leaving your pheasant and going up alongside that bag, any moisture is creating a vacuum in itself. So when I talked about leaving it on a drying rack and getting it a little tacky, uh, that's a big step right there. Like that's a, that's a key step into, into having the, the air leave the bag, it recognizing it, and then putting that seal in there. Anytime you start getting moisture in there, one, it's creating a vacuum, which could leave air in the bag or two, that moisture may not allow you to get a good seal. And if you're in a quick in a hurry, you could take a paper towel and fold it over a couple of times, you know, and lay it there in front of that as like act as like a tract to, to stop the moisture. It's good. It's good. I'm learning. I'm learning a lot here, Jeff. I don't know about you. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Getting uh, hungry is what I'm hopefully, doing. Hopefully, hopefully it's useful information. Like I said, no, it's, it's good. It's good. It oh, really it's... helps to preserve your game. And because there's a lot of people who will put it in the freezer for months and then turkeys, for example, and like they'll get it out and it's just in really bad shape. I've had, John, do you want this turkey? No, I don't. I don't want it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like wish you would have took better care of it, you know, because um, it deserves it. Like I haven't killed a turkey since 2018. It is painful. Uh, I've been trying to get the boys on birds. My oldest shot his first turkey in the spring, but that's like primo meat around here. Some turkey, you know, wild turkey. So yeah. I want I want to ask about a couple of things here. So specifically, we're gonna go. I'm trying to we're gonna to try to keep on pheasant here as we start to roll, continue to roll through here. So, um, you mentioned brining, right? Do you, and brining is something that I'll do with pheasants. And I'll tell us. I could I can tell a story here, but first I just want to ask, like, do you brine all of your pheasant before you cook it? Is that like is that like mandatory? No, definitely not. It all depends on the shape it's in. So was it terribly shot up? If it was terribly shot up, I'm probably dicing it up and I'm making fried pheasant nuggets and it's only going to be fried for 30 seconds to a minute. So it doesn't really need the brine. I'm really going to brine it if I'm going to do like a beer can pheasant or I'm going to do smoked pheasant, something that's going to be cooking longer. Uh, I, it's just so lean. It's incredibly lean. So you got to have that brine in there. If I'm doing pheasant breast and they're in really good shape, and I've dry aged them well. Um, I very well may just lather them with a little bit of um, extra virgin olive oil, put my seasoning on, let them sit for 20 minutes and give them a good quick grill or in a pan, you know, cast iron. I do a lot of cast iron, especially when it's colder in the colder months. Um, so generally speaking, I'm not gonna mess with the brine. Not that it wouldn't help, but I gotta get the brine out and then you gotta have the time to have the brine do its thing, right? And so it all adds time. But if I'm definitely smoking it, or beer can style, something of that nature. I'm, I'm probably brining it. Okay. And then are you dry aging your pheasant then as well? Again, like so, what's the, right, so what's the definition of dry aging, right? Here's what I generally do every time with deer, waterfowl, turkey, you name it. Everything that I do when I'm processing it, I generally either it's 
it's either on the carcass. It just all depends on what. Let's stick with pheasants. So if it's pheasants, I'm, I'm probably taking those birds whole, guts in them and everything. Maybe I take the guts out, um, but I'm putting them in the fridge for a day or two because I'm probably tired and exhausted. Again, it's a lot taking three kids, young kids with shotguns in the field. It's exhausting. Um, sometimes I'll get it. And again, they're old enough to be cleaning their own birds and they do, they do help me. But generally speaking, we've got somewhere else to be. So they're sitting in that fridge uh, for a couple of days. And, or if I do have time to clean them, I'm still cleaning them. And then they're still sitting in the fridge cleaned, sitting in those paper towels or sitting in the water if they need to. But then after the water, I'm putting them on a cookie sheet with a drying rack on it, like a cookie rack or whatever, a roasting pan rack. And I'm laying them on there and allowing air to get to them for a day or two or three. Like, it's not like it's going to start growing mold and go bad, right? I think a lot of people think, oh, it's going to go bad. I've probably left some things in the fridge questionably longer than I should, and it's completely fine. As Hank Shaw will say, your nose knows, right? If it smells funky, and maybe it is. But generally speaking, as long as your fridge is set to the proper temperature, I know I can set mine in a certain area of my fridge, typically towards the back, but not too far. And it won't freeze, but it's really cold back there. Um, but to get that hacky nature um, sitting in the fridge for a couple of days, to me, that is dry aging. That's dry aging, right? It's not in a dry aging machine. It's not got the feathers on. It's just not cooking it immediately to me is dry aging. Wet aging is when you vac seal it and it's sitting in its own juices. Okay. So dry aging is just, it's not sitting in any moisture. It, to me, sitting on paper towels in a Tupperware to me is dry aging in some fashion. Now there could be some chefs or somebody that murder me for that, but sitting in the fridge for a few days and letting that meat do its thing scientifically calm down a little bit, maybe a little rigor mortis, whatever else. Again, I don't have to be attached to the carcass for rigor mortis. I really don't care. I just know that by sitting it in there makes it a much milder tasting meat, whether that's deer or anything else for that matter. And so are you, are you dry aging for flavor or are you, are you dry aging for tenderness? Both. I think you get both. both. You don't get one or the other. When you're doing that, you're totally getting both. But more times than not, when I'm introducing new people to it, it's about taste first, right? Because most of them are overcooking all their stuff anyway. So tenderness really is out the window with them to begin with. Okay. You know, unless they're rich, then they're buying nice cuts of steak and everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to me, a ribeye is expensive, you know? Um, I, got, I don't even know last time. I, I don't even know if I ever even bought a ribeye for my own personal consumption at my house. Unless someone's providing it for me. You, know, you talk about the the tenderness of a, a pheasant. I think that's probably the biggest frustration that most people probably share with pheasants is that you overcook them and they tend to get really chewy and stringy. So, and you know how what what tips do you have for somebody to to try to prevent that outside of the dry aging process? Great question. Now I'm not going to say there's little uh, fine print rolling across the bottom of the screen here, but generally speaking, like the whole 165 thing, you know, 165 degree internal temperature isn't needed. It's not even needed for chicken anymore. You know, you can undercook pork nowadays, you know, just with everything and how the uh, industry, whatever you want to call it, has changed. As far as wild game birds, like you could probably cook that pheasant. Again, don't take this for granted. You're at your own risk when you eat this. But like definitely in the mid to high 150s, for sure you're good. Um, but you got to realize if you're using a probe, which more times than not, when I'm using an internal meat probe, it generally hurts me more than it helps me. Like I, I just go by feel and instinct and I'm using my, my finger test like I'm poking a steak. Um, but you're going to have, especially if you're cooking at high temperatures, you're going to have that residual heat rise. So if you pull it off at 155, you're going to get to a 160, you know, something of that nature. Um, if you can get it right and not overcook it, and again, maybe 165 is overcooked, it's going to be tender for sure. Um, if you overcook it, just add yourself a little dipping sauce, you know? 
Yeah, I tend to the overcooked ones tend to get some ranch or some barbecue sauce slathered on there to to give it a little bit more flavor. We've got a deadly combo in the house that everybody seems to love, and it's um basically a yum yum sauce, right? So like a sushi kind of feel. Are you guys familiar with yum yum sauce? I've, I've heard of it, but give us. Uh, I mean, a sweet, I'm sure it's like a sweet mayonnaise. Um, it's a sweet Asian mayonnaise, and I'm I take some spicy mayo, which I make myself, and it's just mayonnaise with some sriracha. And I put that in the yum yum. It's a yum yum brand. The original yum yum brand is what we buy. And there's there's differences. Um, but I take my spicy mayo, which adds um, some thickness because the yum yum's a little runnier. It adds a little bit of thickness, but it also lessens the sweetness because it right out of the bottle, it's pretty. I mean, for my taste, it's pretty sweet. But we use that in combination with just basically an eel sauce. But to dumb it down, our local grocery store uh, they sell this thing called sushi sauce. It's basically just a soy sauce reduction. It's just thicker, right? Um, but, but, and it's, so if you, if you're a sushi fan and you have that dark sauce and then the, the spicy mayo on top, like that's basically the profile that you're getting. And we eat it a lot on things that we wouldn't think we would eat it on. I almost ate it tonight with the deer tenderloins and don't, don't crucify me for that. You know, eat what you want to eat, right? If you want to put a one on your back strap, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. So it's, so Jeff, you bring up like a really good point, which is where I was heading and why I was specifically asking about brining and dry aging, right? Which is like stringiness or like the toughness with pheasant, right? And that's the thing, as I started to learn how to cook pheasant that I struggled with. I, remember I had this idea in my head uh, probably six years ago. I was like, okay, on my birthday, what do I want to do on my birthday? I want to go to a game farm because it doesn't seem closed, right? Put out some birds, right? Shoot some birds, bring like, field dress them, bring them home. I have this, this buttermilk fried chicken recipe that is like, it's, it's amazing. I have it, I have it bookmarked. Right. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to do pheasant in that. Right. I did it and man, the coating was amazing. Right. Cooked it. It was golden brown, but you're like, I'm just like trying to, I can't like, tear through it because it's so right. It's so stringy, right? And it was a jerky. Yeah. It was like <laughs> pheasant jerky. And it wasn't because it was, it wasn't overcooked. It was just right. It was it was just that tough, stringy, and then, and then, like I figured out brining, and then I brined the next one that I did, right, and and used that same recipe, and it was, you know, I mean, it was like eating a chicken nugget from McDonald's. You just, sure. I, I would say um, two things. One, I would argue that it was overcooked from the simple fact that it was stringy, but there's a fine line between getting your temperature of your oil correct to cook it the length of time you need to cook said pheasant, get the right browning on the, it, again, it's tough. That's where I said earlier, that brining gives you more room for error, sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And then something I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention. So pickle juice is a very common thing. And uh, I have a recipe that's kind of like a knockoff Chick-fil-A recipe. Some people will say that uh, urban legend is that Chick-fil-A, you know, marinates their uh, chicken and pickle juice, dill pickle juice. So I learned that from David Draper. Uh, he's got a, a tag on Instagram called Feral Fork, which is a great name. Um, he's a great writer. And I, so I learned that from him. But just like save your dill pickle juice and marinate your pheasant in that. And it, it's a brine, right? It's a brine. If you like pickles, it's definitely a key thing. Um, when you do that, though, again, make sure that you get that breast dry, pat it dry, because if not, your meat will steam that breading like right off of your pheasant. Um, so I've learned that over time, too. Pickle juice is fascinating. I need all the handicaps I can get when it comes pickle to, juice, yeah. to cooking. You get flavor and the brine all in one, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm still I'm you're you're right. I'm still caught up on the where you said, you know, you, I would argue that you did over. I probably did. I mean, I just it basically like floated up to the top. Right. It was like done right when it floats is done. Um, and I was using I was using a candy thermometer to measure the oil temperature, too. So I was trying to do it right. But I know sometimes yeah. all that technology hurts you because um, like but for what it's worth going forward, I would say anticipate it rising. Right. Don't wait for it to be floating like fried fish. You could really get away with fried fish frying it a little longer, right? My mm -hmm. wife particularly likes it a little crispier, but that pheasant is so delicate that you really need to get it before it starts floating. And knowing that it's going to continue to rise, the temperature is going to rise as it's sitting in your little bowl, you know? Okay. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, it's uh, it's tough. It, no one said it was easy, you know? Uh, but it's just learning, and you're going to eat it. You know, you're going to try to put it away, uh, put it down. But... Yeah, just figuring out what temperature, you know, you don't want to be like smoking hot with pheasant. You don't want it to be more of like a, a 350, 375. And uh, that way it's a slow, slow burn. That's not the right word. But, um, you know, let that, that bread and get GBD, golden brown, delicious. But you haven't overcooked that bird. Hmm. GBD, that's a new one. I haven't heard that before. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. That I think is from Guy Fieri. I think he uses that. Golden oh. brown, delicious. I do, yeah. I do like, I do like some Guy Fieri. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have heard of Yum Yum sauce actually. That did, that's, I think I saw that on like a Food Network. It's got a black, black cat, so, and it's yeah. got like a tan and red black writing. It, yeah, the original House of Yum Yum or something. There's off brands, and you want the original. Okay, okay. Might, now, really good. now, John, you touched on sous vide. I know you mentioned it once while we were talking here. Um, I was actually talking to a, a coworker of mine and I said, oh, you got any questions for him? We got a, we got a wild game cook coming on the podcast. And he said, ask him about sous vide. He was very interested in it. And it's always something that I've been interested in, but I really have no idea. But every time somebody talks about it, they say it's the best meat they've ever had. You know, how, how do you feel about it? Wait, wait, before, and before, before you answer that though, like, I think for anybody who's never heard of it, like we need to define what sous vide is. Okay. So, yeah. I'll give yeah. us a breakdown. Sous vide yeah. is a water immersion circulator, which is fancy words for saying this little wand heats up your water to a very, very specific temperature and maintains that temperature. So if you know that you're, you like your steak exactly 132 and a half degrees, you know, you'll, let's say you want to sous vide it to 130 and then you're going to sear it on all sides to get to that said temperature, let's say. But it just moves the water around. There's a little motor that keeps it moving. It puts it at a very precise temperature. Um, a big kind of underground use for it is like eggs, soft boiled eggs, medium boiled eggs, all this different stuff. They have, you can put your water at a certain temp, your water for exactly the right amount of minutes, and it's going to come out the exact same way every time. Um, a lot of very, very fancy chefs use it because of consistency. Um, have you ever seen the show Letter Kenny? I know I'm going to go off on a tangent. It's like a Canadian sitcom, but there's a very, very uh, viral steak scene where they're cooking a steak. If you just Google Letter Kenny steak scene, it'll come up. It is quite a laugh. It's just a couple minutes long. Um, but basically, they talk about overhandling your steak, right? It should just be seared two minutes on each side, salt and pepper, done, right? And the one guy even says you shouldn't put salt and pepper on it, but uh, you'll have to watch it. It's really funny. I believe that he's not wrong and it could be the most tender, like let's say beef filet you've ever had. I've had beef filet out of a sous vide and it was in fact amazing. I think it's just overhandling. Like I've got to get down into my cabinet because my wife doesn't want a bunch of clutter out. So I've got to get down there. The box is like one of those airtight boxes that has to like slowly slide out, you know, and you got to get your, you know, it's just a lot. 
And um, I believe just what I've learned over time is I can reverse sear a steak and get that real medium rare all the way across and sear it just as good as that, arguably. And I'm not saying it's more manly, you know, but it's just the sous vide's a lot. You got to back seal. You got to get your meat out and you got to back seal it in there. Again, you could put it in a Ziploc bag, but um, if you're trying to impress someone or you're single and you're trying to impress, you know, someone to get to lock down a relationship, then maybe that's the way to go for like Valentine's Day coming up. But I ain't got time for that. Um, I've got one and it, it did work great on a neck roast one time from a deer. Um, I, I don't even think I would mess with it with with birds. I did use it. If you look at my page, I've pinned it to the top. It's Dove Sushi. And I got this idea. I don't know. It's probably four years ago. You have to look at the post. But um, I sous vide it. And I, I did it for like 40 minutes. And I think it was like 130 degrees or 140 degrees for like 40 minutes to an hour. And believe it or not, the dove breast was very gushy on the outside. And that's not a good culinary term, right? It was very soft on like that outer eighth of an inch all the way around. Like you could almost smear it off with your finger. It was, it was interesting. But it gave really strong like tuna salmon vibes. Like it, the texture, the mouthfeel was very similar to tuna, uh, raw tuna. So it was cooked, right? It was cooked properly to temp, but it was soft. And generally, you're not going for that, right? Well, it worked really well on that sushi. The last couple of times I've made it, I did grill my sushi to like medium rare, uh, just because, again, I don't want to mess with the sous vide. But uh, yeah, all that to say, I don't know if I would use it with uh, with upland birds, maybe like a tough cut. I sure wouldn't use it on like a backstrap or a filet which is what most people use it for, which is crazy because it's already tender. You're trying to put it in that temperature for a long period of time to make it tender. And to me, a backstrap's already tender. It's my favorite cut, you know. Um, like I said, I think tenderloins are overrated, but uh, we'll, we'll stick back to pheasants. So, yeah, it's it's okay, you know, look into it. There's all It's just like there's groups online where you can get any recipe you want, and they've, they've done, did it. They got the temperature of the water, how long you got to cook it, you know, then you got to sear it because it's going to be soft when it's in there, right? Um, it, it could be fairly, you know, fail-proof, I say. You can go longer. If you follow a recipe, it's fail-proof. But if you try to do your own thing and just like, oh, I think I need to go in there for this amount of time, you can go too long, and it ruins the, the meat, the st structure, integrity of the meat. I tell you right now, that sounds way too complicated for me. I probably will pass on that and just hope that somebody with a sous vide can invite me over to their house. There you go. It's already it, done. Yeah, I, can, I can drink beer while they, while they that's, that's, prepare that's it. That's a good point, Jeff. Yeah, and it's yeah. like – you know, it, three kids, I would have been all about testing it out and buying it. Maybe in 20 years, you know, when my children are, you know, in college or have jobs, then I would then I would dabble because I'll have more time. But I can't imagine spending that much time on something to learn that for it to be that delicate. It just doesn't it doesn't time right now. Yeah. And they're not expensive. I think you could probably get a nice unit for around a hundred bucks. I think that's what we paid for ours. It's not expensive. It's just, it's just a lot. I think it's overrated. That's fair. All right. You sold me on overrated. Not for taste, not for taste or anything. Just the whole, yeah. the whole package. Okay. I'm sold. I'm sold on it being overrated, Jeff. So tell your buddy that. Same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's go. Let's go straight for the, Straight for the juggler here. What are your top three favorite pheasant recipes or upland game recipes? Great question. Um, again, I want to make sure I mention this. So if you go to my page, you go to my website, wildgamecook.com, go to recipes. The first thing you'll see is a Midway USA link that takes you to where a lot of my recipes are currently. And there's one called chucker pasta. And the only reason it's chucker is because that's what I had on hand. But really it's pheasant, it's chicken, 
it's quail, it's whatever you want it to be. But basically, it's that same chicken pasta dish I mentioned I was talking to you about the high schoolers. It's also the number one dish that I experimented with in college to kind of like branch out from hamburger helper. Like this was this is basically that dish. And we still make it all the time. We used to make it in college with the chicken patties. And now we're making it with pheasant or chicken or whatever. Uh, but it's basically Alfredo sauce, pasta. Uh, again, for that acidity, that balance, you got to add some diced tomatoes. If you don't like tomatoes, add some lemon juice. Um, you can put sauteed mushrooms, onions in there if you'd like, sauteed spinach if you'd like. Um, pasta doesn't matter. It could be angel hair, it could be penne, it could be bow tie, whatever. But tucker pheasant pasta is, is a favorite of ours. Um, I do have a Chick-fil-A recipe. Um, I don't know if it's on my website. I know it's not on my website. I don't believe it's on uh, Midway or anything, but if anyone messages me, I could totally send them a, a little JPEG of my uh, chick fillet with a PH for pheasant instead of an F. Um, and it's just basically breast meat marinated in pickle juice, dredged, and then a knockoff Chick-fil-A sauce, which most of the ingredients for a Chick-fil-A sauce you have at your house. Um, and then the third one for pheasant um, would probably be, uh, I, I guess I call them roasted legs, but I take the legs and I season them um, and I brown them in a cast iron. And then I put like a bunch of sliced onions in there and I caramelize those and I add some beef stock. You could add beer, whatever, like a quarter cup or so, and then add your legs back in, put the lid on your cast iron and, you know, give it a couple hours at like 225 degrees. And those legs and thighs just become crazy tender. And I like to eat them right out of the cast iron. I mean, you can do whatever you want with it. You can put it in a pot pie, like I told you earlier, anything you want. Just like the caramelization and all that brown bits in that cast iron is, uh, I'm not going to say, I, my mouth was just watering there. I had to swallow it. So that's a really good one. <laughs> I'll, I, I can tell you right now, I want the, I want the Chick-fil-A one. With all right. pH. I want that one for sure. I have to learn how to clean a pheasant properly before I can do the last one. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard. Just get in there and get after it. You know? I know I need some wraps. I got to go. I've got to get some blood on my hands. I've got a brand new vest. that needs some blood in it. Jeff talked about this. Yeah, you do. We need some so. game farm. It's game farm season now. So oh, it is, it is unfortunately, but well, at least we still have an opportunity to get out there and get the dog some exercise and chase yeah. around some birds. On the way, sir. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. That was fast. Look at that service. Yeah, um, all right. I got good recall. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to, we've been talking for like an hour and 20 minutes. I'm sure we could talk for like another hour and 20 here. Uh, I want to transition over, start to transition over to sort of wrapping things up. But before I do that, Jeff, what, what do you got? Anything, anything else for John? Well, the only other thing, John, that I had written down was I, this last year I had the opportunity to, um, go on my first rough grouse hunt and i have to tell you the rough grouse that i ate was probably the best upland game meat that i've ever had um I, have you had rough grouse i would assume you have that's a good assumption uh but luckily for you you're correct one time like two years ago i went to michigan and it was a tailgate like a shore lunch right but it yeah. was on the tailgate with my buddy's little uh, miniature traeger and it was kept it simple and yeah it's it's really sought after it's really good yeah, and that was that was exactly what I did too. I, I kind of was since it was my first time eating that meat. I just wanted to keep it basic, simple, and actually taste the meat, right? Yeah. So I just did a little bit of salt, threw it on a frying pan, cooked it, and it was it was phenomenal. You no, know, and, and one of my questions was, 
you know, obviously rough grouse is a lot different than pheasant. Um, it's probably closer to chicken, I would assume, but I think you kind of answered it that, you know, a lot of the suggestions that you gave can go for any upland bird. You know, it doesn't really matter if it's rough grouse, if it's chucker, if it's pheasants, quail, you name it. Sounds like, you know, everything, all the advice you were giving us can apply across the board. Generally, so I would say with like quail, they're pretty delicate. They're pretty tender. I don't know if you need to brine it as often, like in different settings, if you know what I mean. Like it has lesser settings where you would need to brine it, if that makes sense. And then with rough grouse, again, I'm I'm fairly new to the meat, right? I, I didn't even shoot the bird. Another friend of mine shot it and I got to eat some of it. But, you know, I'm not getting into a lot of rough grouse. Now, maybe if you're from Michigan, you're getting into a lot of them. Again, you're looking for other ways to cook it. But if I'm eating grouse every other year, like, I'm cooking it pretty much very simply, right? Salt and pepper with my friends, you know, on the tailgate. We did, we spatchcocked ours. I remember that. We spatchcocked, we plucked them. Mm. Again, it wasn't very hard to do. Like the game birds, there's not as many feathers on there as you might think. And if you rip the skin or whatever, no big deal. It's better than skinning it completely. But we spatchcocked it, just cut the spine out, flattened it, seasoned it with whatever rub we had, and, and just didn't overcook it. It was really good. And I would say on that trip, we also had a lot of woodcock, which can get a really bad rap, you know, because they're eating worms, they're eating whatever else. The interesting thing about woodcock, if you didn't know, so the breast meat is like dark meat and the legs are white meat, which is really interesting. That's, yeah, so that's weird. The breast that. weird because they migrate and it has to do with aerobic and anaerobic or something like that. Um, I learned that from Delta waterfowl. So, but if you know a woodcock, I mean, they're not really running around too much. So my guess is they just don't use their legs in the way that you would think they would um ironically if you've ever seen them like dancing you know like they got a really funny walk to them but so good i mean it's a, it's a earthier bird for sure it's not a rough grouse you know it's not chicken but it's very very good um it is very lean so you don't want to overcook it but i was very very surprised on how well i liked eating woodcock too hmm. and when you're a terrible grouse hunter you, you get what you get which is woodcock <laughs> that's very true <laughs> that's funny that's funny all right. Uh, so, John, we are going to wrap up with what we call Sky Blast questions. These are, think it's like, think like rapid fire, right? Yep. Yep. Yay, bird, right? Your goose, your duck is flying away. You have, you're just going to let it fly. Yep. So, um, you're going to empty the chamber here. So, we're going to ask some questions. Some of them are going to be cooking related. Some are going to be hunting related. Some are probably not going to be related to anything at all. They're going to be completely random. First thing that comes to your mind, you shout out the answer. Got it. I'll do we my have, best to be concise. Yeah, yeah we have some. <laughs> we just have some fun here before we wrap things up. Sure. So, and that, this is the first time you've heard of Sky Blast questions, right? You didn't hear it before we started recording or anything, right? It, yeah. No. There, there was no spoiler, right? Yeah. Tyler? <laughs> no, no spoiler at all, Jeff. <laughs> all right, you want me to go first? A little teaser. <laughs> sure, go for it. We all can right. alternate. All right. My first one, barbecue sauce or hot sauce? Hot sauce. Nice. No nice. question. All right. Favorite brand of cooking knives? Ooh. Cooking knives. I'm going to say Benchmade. Benchmade? Okay. If okay. you had to eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'm going to tell you, and you're probably going to laugh. Uh, well, if I'd have one food for the rest of my life, the, the word, I always say my last meal is going to be a double cheeseburger, fries, and a Coke from McDonald's. That's pretty <laughs> yeah. hard to beat. It is. That's for sure. That's a that's a great combo. All right. Deadly. It's only, the only problem now is it's $8 when it used to be 3 But Yeah. 
we're getting old. Yeah, they even have a value menu anymore. Is that even a thing? I haven't been McDonald's it's, in so no, long. It's a, it's a bait and switch. Yeah. Is, okay, let me, I'm going to interrupt here. Is McDonald's fountain Coke still as, still as good as it used to be? I think so. I'm a, I'm a diet Mountain Dew drinker, like avidly. Okay. So that's like my only vice. Um, but McDonald's fountain Coke is one A. There, there's something about fountain soda versus oh, yeah. in a can or a bottle. It's unbelievable. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's yeah. and then there's no there's there's few things that'll disappoint me more than getting a fountain pop, especially when it's under my own advices or my own, you know, accords and I, I don't test the waters and I get in the car and it's flat or it tastes like some other pop from uh, that. Oh yeah. And it just doesn't hit the spot. That's like first world problems right there. <laughs> so if you're ever doing it by yourself in the machine, give a little and let little it taste test. itself out, then get some, test it, and know whether you got to move forward or move on. <laughs> there you That's go. some great advice right there. It'll, All right. it'll, it'll ruin you. This is my last one. I probably know the answer, but I don't know. You might throw me for a loop here. Propane or charcoal? Propane, but really it's neither now. It's wood pellets. Uh, wood I have pellets? a pellet grill, but for many, many years I used propane and I'd put it up against anybody's charcoal steak. Again, timeliness, right? It's time. away from the yep. charcoal. It's not that it doesn't taste better, but I got other things to do, man. Yeah. I tell you what, my, my wife just got me the Traeger Flat Rock. And that yep. thing is that thing is sweet. I've been Did loving I answer that the thing. That you thought I would answer or no? Yeah, I, no, I got you on that one. You did, you know, but the the ease of use and the timeliness is is critical. That's really just a big turn key to turn the handle, light it up, it up, good to go. Yeah, but like I said, now I'm on the pellet grill, which is is arguably just as quick. Um, and I have the sidekick, which has the propane burner, so I can get my searing going on and, and doing all that. So look at you have a, you have a favorite brand uh, pellet. Uh, well, uh, I, just, I just buy the Camp Chef pellets. I have a Camp Chef Woodwind, and I buy their competition blend flavor, which is like cherry, hickory, and maple. Maybe okay. um, it's very mild. It's very good across all spectrums of meat. Um, I rarely switch it up um, unless I just go like standard hickory, but competition nice. blend. Awesome. All right, Tyler, you're up. That was that you stole a couple of my questions there. Uh, well, shoot, I can give that's, you a that's why I go first. The McDonald's answer has got an asterisk next to it because they always <laughs> ask me my last meal, and that that one hundred and twenty percent is my last meal. <laughs> uh, the the smoker one was in that that is that is good. I was going to ask you about that too. Well, smoking is different than grilling. I, I took his more of a yeah. grilling question. It's true. No, it's true. I have I have a pit boss. All right. Um, I have the the. Mine has the grate that I can open up so I can crank it up and do like open flame traditional grilling on it. I wish I would have bought a bigger one so I had more of that space on there. But then I can also right set it at 200 degrees and smoke for hours yeah. at a time. Camp Chef's so. slide and grill technology has that. And uh, mm -hmm. again, I will I sold you on the sous vide or didn't sell you on the sous vide. I'd sell you on a Camp Chef. So they have a 14-inch accessory system. So I have my pellet grill with a 14-inch sidekick, which is just a gas burner. Mm -hmm. I put a flat top on there, 14 by 14, which is big enough for our family most times. Yep. I can put a 14-inch cast iron skillet. I can put a grill box. I can put a pizza oven. And then all those things, all I can fry fish on it. All those things also fit on my Pro 60X, which are now calling a Pro 14. So I take that camping. I take it to my outdoor cooking events. And all those accessories fit on my my little portable two-burner. So it's, it's all fit. I don't have a whole backyard full of implements you know i have two okay. i have my flat top slash two burner and i have my propane grill or my, okay. my pellet smoker all right you're selling you're selling me on this here and i'm not even asking questions but, okay how much how much i have a pit boss i've had it for 
four or five years. Love it, right? But you're mm -hmm. selling me on the camp shelf here. Like, yep. what, what is that going to run me here for that type well, of versatility? Funny enough, the one I have doesn't have the slide and grill technology. Uh, their okay. Woodland Pro doesn't have that any longer. But you can. Okay. It, that's a good thing because then the one with the slide and grill, I think you can get into for around six to eight hundred bucks. Okay. Um, they make different varieties. That's one thing about Camp Chef. There's so many levels of price points that you can get into yeah. to fit your budget. But the big thing is that 14-inch sidekick, which you can buy it all as one package or buy it separately. And all those 14-inch accessories fit on that two-burner. The two-burner, I want to say, is around $299. It's, it's not hateful. It's not hateful. And, but you're getting like six things in one. And I don't have a huge family. So, you know, flat-top cooking is huge right now. Blackstones. Everyone say Blackstones. Their Blackstone is simply a Blackstone flat top griddle that's on wheels that's stuck on their patio. My, what they call now Pro 14, I can collapse the legs, put it in a little carry roller bag, and I can take it to my camper. If I don't want to wake up early and get the fire going for breakfast, I can cook breakfast on it. I can take it to sporting events, tailgating, all that stuff, and all those accessories fit on my pellet grill too. It's it's a, it's unbelievable. Okay. All right. So the flat top is the next thing that I want to get, right? And Jeff, you you now have one. Is that what I heard? Yeah, I have the Traeger Flat Rock. Okay, and yes, no, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. I, I like it. You know, I was initially I was a little concerned that it wouldn't replace a traditional grill, but I tell you what, I made some venison chops on it the other day, and it was phenomenal. The big thing is maintenance and cleaning, and it's not hard, but you yep. do have to be conscientious of it. You have yep. to maintain it appropriately, or it will rust and corrode on you. And right. to me, that's any brand that I've seen or dealt with, including yeah. Cantrip. You got to take care of it, get it properly seasoned, and yeah, and that's probably the biggest the biggest downside of the the flat top is after you're done cooking and you pull all your steaks off, whatever it may be, you got to put oil on it, crank the heat up, let it smoke off, and you know that's I forgot about it a couple times. It's still on, you know. I've already ate dinner. Oh shit, you know the grill's still on, so they didn't go out and turn it off. So that's probably the biggest downside of it is the the post prep that you have to do to, to maintain it but i, think I, I like it so far i think it's the biggest use is for more of like entertaining or social settings because not only can you you got a lot of space but you're also back there wheeling and dealing you know oh like, yeah you make the little onion volcano you know yeah 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 so <laughs> yeah. that's where i think it's got its most value not just from a flat top because a flat top is it's just a flat top i mean don't get me wrong yeah. you could bacon and pancakes and steak i get it but uh, it's like a hibachi you know oh yeah i'm Flipping back there around, yeah the phone, for sure <laughs> but I, I like it. We do a lot of like scrambles and just throw a whole bunch of veggies and stuff into a pile. And it was getting old on a traditional grill, having the little like veggie baskets and everything. That's the nice thing. You can just dump it all on there, squirt some oil on it and flip it around whichever way. It, it's it's nice. So the one thing I the one thing that's that I, that I'm hesitating on is I'm worried I'm not going to use it enough. Right. I'm Because when I think like flat top, like my mind goes to like, Okay, I'm not going to make breakfast on the flat top like five days a week, right? Not for a lot of people either. So that Camp yeah. Chef, it's a 14 by 14 inch sidekick. like a, It's a 14 inch flat top. And again, I have a family of five. Generally speaking, it's big enough. You know, It's not a full on flat top, but to your point, for as much as I'm using it, it's all the coverage that I need. And for that Pro 60X or that Pro 14, they do make a double burner, so which it's 28 inches long if you so choose. Uh, if that's really a thing for you, you know, for us on that two burner, I love having my cast iron skillet and the flat top side by side or the flat top in the grill box side by side or whatever. Um, and it works for our needs really, really well. Okay. Okay. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, 
I, I, I'll keep I'll keep uh, marinating on that one, and eventually. And another another plug. This is completely random. Uh, so Friday night, I'm leaving Shot Show, and I end up eating sushi. And I, some random guy starts talking to me as if I would normally talk to a random person because I talk to anybody. But he beat me to the punch, and it's the CEO of Guidefitter. And so if you're not familiar with Guidefitter, you should go on there. But like, there's all kinds of great brands, including Camp Chef, where a lot of stuff's discounted. And if you're in the industry, like you guys are with your podcast, I think you might be able to fit into like Outdoor Educator or something. Uh, but get on there, and you may very well maybe get discount on that. So, okay, hmm. interesting. Okay, add it to all the right. ever-growing list of things you need to buy, Tyler. Oh, every this podcast is terrible. The amount of things that I need to buy because of the people that we talk to and the the <laughs> advice that we get is just it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's I need another. Keep I need worse. A, I need another job. So, um, okay, let's let me get back on track here after I totally sidetracked us there. Sky busting for sky blasting questions. Okay. Uh, coffee or energy drink, energy, no. energy drinks, neither, uh, diet Mountain Dew. Okay. I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. Oh my. And you don't want to see me on energy drinks. It'd be I'm, too I'm, bad. I'm, too bad. Matt's not here. He, I know. He's long, yeah, blow he's... your gasket on an energy, energy. Drink. <laughs> okay. I missed a dig buck one morning. The first time I'd ever took a five hour energy. And I don't know that I've ever, I can't say I've never had one since, but I've never had one casually when i'm working a big expo and i need to like get my body to be working but generally speaking it's diet mountain dew 10 out of 10 times okay uh donuts or muffins donuts not even a question okay not a cake uh, unless it's butter uh we call it banana nut bread muffin and they're really moist like otis spunkmeyer I bet you didn't know you were going to get an Otis Spunkmeyer name drop on here, but Otis Spunkmeyer muffins are about as good as they get. Quick Trip's got some pretty phenomenal muffins, too. Oh, they're like 500 calories. For oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like but, my kind of smile. But, man, are they good. They're, they're delicious. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, your top three wild game cookbooks, since you mentioned earlier, you have a shelf full of wild game cookbooks. Yep. So, um, I'm just going to go with three authors, but Hank Shaw's, he's got a whole series, Buck, Buck, Moose, Hunt, Gather, Cook, all, all of Hank's books, Meat Eaters Cookbooks. And I'm going to throw a little bit more of an obscure one out there, uh, but Christy Crabtree, she is Nevada Foodies on or her handles, Nevada Foodies on Instagram. She has some of the most mouthwatering photos and great recipes on Instagram. It's, uh, yeah, she's really one to look at. So I, I think it's just called like Wild Game Gourmet or something is the name of her book. But okay look hers up okay that's one i haven't heard of i have i own a meat eater cookbook i'm very familiar with hank shaw i just used one of his recipes for uh venison roast that i had done a few weeks ago that my uh i got screwed over by my grill on so he's got a steak diane recipe that's really simple but it sounds yeah. fancy and it looks fancy um it's it's you know you got to buy a couple of ingredients you normally wouldn't have but yeah. um it's a good yeah. one Okay. Um, what is what is your favorite wild game recipe? Any any wild game? Just what is what is your go to one? Right. If your last meal has to be go to, wild, yeah, it has to be a wild game recipe. What's yeah, what is it going to be? There, uh, it was what's my favorite or what's my go to? Those are different. So I need you to I need you to specify. Go okay. Go favorite. All right. I'm gonna say the first one that popped in my head, and that's a very tough question to answer. But I have a smothered venison recipe that's on my website. Um, it's basically like country fried cubed steaks. Like, so I, if you want to indulge, you take the back strap because it's really tender, but you do cube it that way. All that flour and dredging gets all up in those little crannies and you, you brown it. And then you've got your mushrooms and onions and gravy and green onions on top, just smothered in gravy and serve that over uh, mashed potatoes. 
It's pretty good. My go-to just He's every day. excited. An easy yeah. one is just beer tacos, like good old American, you know, tacos, um, t- flour tortillas. That's like my number one go-to just from nostalgia and ease of making it. We have that more than any other recipe, probably three, three to four fold more than any other one. Okay. I mean, that's right. You're taking your ground venison, right? Seasoning it, topping it with t- the taco toppings of your choice, depending on how you want to do it. That's right? it. And the big thing for us too, and again, not a plug really, but uh, I grew up just eating Ortega taco seasoning. Like that's just yeah. what we always had. Ortega taco sauce is still in our fridge. Like that's a must. Um, but my wife would get like stomach issues from the Ortega seasoning and she liked them so much. She just always just dealt with it. Um, I got turned on to this pulley whistles provisions. It's a seasoning. They make a taco seasoning. It's out of Pennsylvania, a little small, small business. And not only is it good, uh, but my wife doesn't get any stomach issues from it. So that's definitely been our go-to taco seasoning. All right. Are you a, are you like a, a Tex-Mex taco guy? Are you more like the like traditional tacos with, with again, American traditional tacos, just cheese, lettuce, tomato. A lot of times it's very light lettuce, but it's cheese, tomato, taco sauce, sour cream, and and meat. That that's normally my go-to. I'm feeling fancy and we've bought them. I'll put some sliced or mashed avocado in there. Um, But generally taco sauce, tomatoes, cheese, meat, and a little bit of lettuce. If I'm feeling frisky (laughs) flour tortillas though. And sometimes again, if I'm feeling fancy, it'll be a double decker. So we'll get some, Hard taco shells, put the cheese, traditional double decker. And like again, it's like highfalutin, man. Like you're you're high on the hog those days, you know, high on the deer. <laughs> All right. Uh last question. You who is your your favorite wild game cook slash chef that you would who you really inspire and follow along with? Um, that's a tough one. Um, but can I cheat or can I do one? I, I can make it quick. You can thanks, y'all. Yeah. Uh, Scott Layseth from Sporting Chef TV show. Uh, Steve Rinella, of course, is a big inspiration. Uh, but again, more of that obscure one, not not as well known, is uh, Christy Crabtree from Nevada Foodies. Okay. That's that's. I'm gonna go look at her page as soon as we hang up. I, my photos are not they're not bad. T- today's technology with phones makes my photos look really good. But her photography is amazing, and I know the food is mat. I know the food matches. I know it does. And she does some pretty interesting creative stuff. Um, with a lot with waterfowl too. That's good. That's good. And you know, the, what's the saying you eat with your eyes first. So uh-huh. like 85% of it, 85% is with your eyes. Yep. So you make it look, you make wild game look appetizing. You're going to get more people to eat it. Yep. So, okay, perfect. That's all I've got. Uh, John, uh, phenomenal job here. Uh, why don't you take a minute here? You, you plug some of your stuff already, but Give it to us all in one fell swoop here. How can people get in touch with you? How can they follow you online, your website, all that good stuff? If they have questions, like how, how, do, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, great. So uh, my website just went live within the last couple of weeks, which I'm pretty proud about. So it's just wildgamecook.com. Um, and pretty much my handle on all social media is wildgamecook. Um, on Twitter, uh, it's the wildgamecook. But other than that, everything else is at wildgamecook. Instagram's where most of my content is. Again, my website will take you to where anywhere that my recipes are. If you have any questions, just private message me on Instagram or hit me up on my new contact tab on my website. I got used to saying that, I guess. But um, I'm happy to talk to anybody about anything. Um, you know, happy to help. There's been a lot of people help me out with a lot of tips and tricks and still do. So, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Perfect. I'll be reaching out, guaranteed. Yeah, let me know. I, I said I, I'm not a recipe person. I, I generally used to say I, I would have, a, I would love to have a random person call me and I would just tell them how I did it. 
problem is, is I have gotten a little bit more of a larger following and now there's more random people that call me about the same thing. So it is generally probably better suited for me to write things down and, and share them with stuff, but don't hesitate to reach out. Okay. Perfect. Excellent. Uh, John, thank you for, for joining us, spending some time. I don't think this is going to be the last time we chat about cooking wild game. That's just a, just a gut feeling I have. Uh, if you've made it this far and you're listening, thank you for tuning in. If you have 10 seconds after this wraps up, leave us a, a quick review. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, send us a message on social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning in and we will see you all next week. Thanks, John. Thanks, guys. Have fun.